0: Welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we will be covering a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability.
1: I'm Pablo Samoylis. And I'm George Wyatt. We're both product designers currently studying at the University of Sussex. Currently? Well...
0: This is episode 9, The Wilder Side. Last episode we discussed the humble desk. Be sure to check out that episode and all of our others after this.
1: And the global coronavirus crisis is still ongoing, so we're still recording from our homes, but we're doing our best from what we've got. Indeed.
0: So today's episode is special because it marks the date that George completed his university thesis. Well done.
1: woo
0: I don't know if you can clap on a microphone.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Let's try it. Uh, it's It's kind of weird to be done, to be honest.
0: It must feel very strange, especially, I mean... Obviously, given this entire global situation, even weirder.
1: Yeah, I just finished and sort of went downstairs and had a sandwich. <laughs> it's basically what I did. But yeah, so this this week, we're kind of talking about my final design project, really. Mm. we're Sort of going through a lot of the research that I've done for it, and talking a little bit about what I ended up designing. And it should be, hopefully it'll be really interesting. Obviously, I found it quite interesting, because that's why I chose this subject area, but...
0: You know, honestly, I think it's going to be good, loads of fun, because even though what you studied and did is not something that I'd kind of call myself interested in, I have found it fascinating to follow your process, and it's really cool what you've made, so I think it'll be fun.
1: Yeah, and I've, I've, I have learned some really random, quite interesting things, so hopefully it'll be cool. So where did you begin, and is that where we should begin? Well, I, sp- I suppose we probably should, to be honest, um, give a basic summary of where I started. So... I basically started looking at um, urban environments and how we can put more nature into them, which is a very broad, broad topic, um, because I, I, you know, as as I said in our intro episode that we first did a long while ago now, I grew up in a little village, so to me, cities are quite overwhelming. Mm. So yeah, I started basically looking at at cities and, and all this, and I started researching into how cities are kind of growing and they're just expanding rapidly. So uh, interesting interesting fact number one. Uh, there's going to be a lot of these probably. Cities are currently predicted to house two-thirds of the global population by 2050. That's, so that's a, that's lot, a lot of, lot of That's
0: what, something, three
1: billion? That's probably, yeah, because that's probably going to be about 10 billion people. Well, no, two, sorry, two-thirds would be about more like six billion oh, people in yeah, cities. Oh, yeah, sorry. Probably. Uh, obviously, it's only a prediction.
0: So essentially, the urbanisation of the environments around us and just the dense population that's going to happen.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And it's just as people move into cities, there's going to be a lot more people kind of moving away from countryside into cities. Cities are growing and they're expected to sort of use up kind of double the amount of land space that they do now.
0: Useful piece of term is urban sprawl. Remember that? For geography? Yes.
1: I was going to mention urban sprawl. Yes. Um, so that's that's kind of one of the sort of issues in this sort of area is that urban sprawl just means that cities take up more space than they need to. So these sort of more compact, dense cities are probably better for the environment because they don't devastate as much of it. So yeah, I kind of started looking around this this sort of area and all this statistics, and then sort of, you know, what damage these cities are doing to the natural world. Because... I mean I'm sure everyone's aware of you know climate change and loss of biodiversity around the globe and you know it's all pretty pretty scary and pretty big issues. Yeah. And by no means do I think I could solve it but um it's, it's an interesting to, thing to look at.
0: A kind of a fascinating like introspection into how as cities grow so lots of people are going to end up living in them how can they grow sustainably?
1: Yeah, that's that's one of the big big issues because Especially with sprawling cities, as they sprawl out further and further, it's causing more traffic to have to travel through them because people have got to travel further into the cities. Yes, and you know that's causing air pollution, carbon emissions, and all these sort of things, and other dangers to wildlife just to literally being hit by a car. So yeah, there's there's a lot of issues that are happening with it, and also something else that's interesting that I found, and it's it's probably something that we all kind of know but have not really ever thought about, and that's the fact that. A lot of cities actually are placed on top of places of quite rich biodiversity because they're often at sort of river edges or tributaries of rivers and deltas. and all these sort of, They're often positioned around these sort of places which are very fertile because that's where people first settled mm. for farmland. And then it sort of developed, which of course means that we've basically covered over more biodiverse locations than are necessarily found elsewhere. So we essentially tend to take
0: the places that have the best chances of being kind of the greatest parts of nature and urbanize them.
1: Yeah, because, you know, human tendencies we're drawn to those sort of places as well. And you often find, you know, cities, sort of boundaries between lots of different ecosystems with deserts and jungles and forests and grasslands, like all surrounding like one city in some places in the world.
0: Mm, but I would suppose you're hoping that cities will be able to develop in a way doesn't really damage biomass and almost uh, kind of encourages plants and animals to continue.
1: Yeah, that's that's the ideal world in at least in my eyes and I think it's probably the ideal situation for climate change and biodiversity in general around the globe. So yeah, it's 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 a massive issue and biodiversity loss because of just humans is tremendous, you know. We've lost I think 75% of flying insects in Europe. That's astonishingly yeah, and there's other there's other ones that are like blue. I think bluefin tuna. Obviously, this isn't cities, but this is more to do with um, fishing. their their sort of numbers have dropped by 90 percent?
0: Yeah, bluefin tuna are critically injured, and actually one of the things that's made it worse is as that because they're a wanted commodity for kind of sushi and other food markets. As they've become more and more endangered, the actual hunting of them has increased. Because some organisations have started to mass freeze them, so that they can sell them for even higher profit after extinction, which is awful. That's horrible. It's
1: disgusting. Yeah. So, it, as as I said, you know, the cities, it's us humans, we we're good at causing chaos, to be honest. Yeah. And and our cities are pretty pretty good at doing that. And to be honest, these cities aren't aren't that good for us either. They they're, they're damaging the people that are living there as well. There's actually there's, there's higher rates of um, like depression and schizophrenia and stuff in cities and and ironically higher loneliness mm-hmm. because compared to these sort of more quieter of towns and villages it's it's so busy and bustling that it's hard to stop and notice these sort of things
0: i suppose towns and villages have a very kind of community aspect to them and i mean all of these you know mental personal health health issues don't even consider the fact that smog and pollution severely affects lungs
1: yeah Absolutely, and there's, you know, and your health and just exercise as well. People don't tend to get outside for exercise as much when they're, you know, in a city because it's harder to. There's not as many nice places to go to in that sense. And yeah, these cities, as you mentioned, there's smog and air pollution because of how dense we're sort of building up all these sort of infrastructure and all the cars and, and those sort of things, and because we're not leaving the trees and stuff in there to filter them out. And all of that adds on top with like the urban heat island effect, which is basically where the sun is bounced around, basically. Well, the sun's heat, not the actual sun, obviously. Um, <laughs> it's bounced around cities and increases the local air temperature more than it would in the countryside because plants sort of block it and absorb it. And...
0: So given all of that, and I mean, a bit of a depressing start, but also really gives a good sense of the reality of urban life is beginning to become and in the future. What is the kind of primary movement against or
1: there's a i mean there's a lot of stuff out there um for urban environments it's mostly sort of the urban greening things which i'm going to come to later um but for actually for the biodiversity and a lot of environment things it's 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 quite a lot this um this new idea basically it it only i think it only entered the dictionary in 2011 the word and it's this this concept of rewilding basically and i I got stuck down a rabbit hole with this one it's it, I found it really fascinating you know it's mostly focused more around countryside and uplands and stuff like that and farmland would you say kind of rewilding as a concept
0: and something you became interested in is what kind of triggered the beginning of your project
1: not quite because I didn't I, I started doing my research and then found the concept of rewilding um but it definitely it, it literally led me down down the route of how I ended up designing something it was it's it's a really, really really fascinating concept. It's basically the idea of just, you know, conservation is fantastic and we need more of it, but a lot of conservation sometimes gets stuck in this idea of trying to freeze ecosystems in, in their place, not letting stuff enter, not letting stuff change. And that's sort of not what nature does, basically, is what rewilding's looking at. And so it's more about just human stepping back, human control, and just letting nature to do the right things, obviously that requires some conservation because you have to, you know, remove some species which are messing it up because they've invaded mostly because of us, and reintroduce some that are missing. And it's a, yeah, it's a really fascinating thing. There's a really interesting case study of it in uh, Yellowstone Park, basically.
0: That's in California.
1: That is, and yeah, so this this one basically is about wolves, which obviously this this doesn't tie into cities that well because you can't bring wolves into cities but um it's still fun this i still found this really interesting so basically for 70 years there was no wolves left in yellowstone because people had hunted them out and because of that the deer population and sort of deer and elk had boomed and this had meant that they were grazing everywhere just completely down and so new saplings couldn't grow up on riverbanks and valleys so when they reintroduced these wolves, it forced a behavior change in the deer, as well as hunting some of them to lower their population. So these deer didn't go to riversides and valleys anymore because they could easily get get, get trapped there. There wasn't anywhere to run and there was less less ways to look around, less places to, to look, basically. So by doing that, it meant that all these trees started sprouting back up in these places, which meant that more birds came in and down by the riverbanks it kind of shaded the river and reinforced the riverbanks which created more habitat for fish and it also brought in more beavers but basically, basically yeah so it enhanced this riverside um, ecosystem which meant that there was capacity for more beavers the beavers then made dams and made more habitat for other things like frogs and lizards and am- other amphibians water voles all that sort of stuff um, and as all these trees started you know, sprouting up there was other 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 species that came back in as well because because of this, you know. There was a bear; the bear population increased because there was more fruit, berries, basically around.
0: I think that's fascinating that literally only the reintroduction of one predator, which is very counterintuitive to trying to kind of grow an entire population, creatures below that, in the, had such a drastic effect. And I think it also kind of raises a point that I don't think many people are so unaware of how deer can be really damaging. Yeah and it's important in like where we live in the kind of sem- you know semi-urban situations where there are still many many deer you know people see deer but people don't see wolves so you end up with this kind of unchecked creature that
1: yeah and there's a lot of contention around deer culling and deer hunting obviously for the reason of you know if it it's it feels unethical to go out and just hunt and cull deer but you know Without these predators in place, we actually do need to do it, was something that I found. And I was completely on the side of, no, you shouldn't be going out and hunting deer, it just seems wrong, and they're like, a lovely creature. But actually, when you start to realise the effects that they have on the ecosystem when they're unchecked because there's no predators, it really changes your perspective on it. Yes. So yeah, this is this whole kind of rabbit hole that I went down, basically, because as you can see, it's not it doesn't really tie into cities, because you can't go and reintroduce wolves to cities, it doesn't. Doesn't work like that.
0: So, what would you do in a city?
1: Well, that was that was what I wasn't really sure about, <laughs> to be honest, for quite a while. Um, and I started just basically looking into because so so wolves in this case are what's known as a keystone species, and so are beavers and stuff like that because they have such wide rippling effects on the entire entire environment they're in, basically. um So, I basically started trying to look for like kind of smaller keystone species that weren't necessarily mm-hmm. Large mammals or carnivores. So,
0: essentially, a keystone species that could potentially work in an environment.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And I mean, whether I found what would be strictly known as a keystone species or not, I don't know. But um, what I ended up actually looking at was mosses because, you know, it's just the humble moss. And no one really, one really thinks much about the moss. But actually, it has a really important part to play in sort of woodland ecosystems because it's basically it breaks down like exposed rock and harder substratum basically the technical term and it breaks down for other plants to use and it absorbs carbon and rainwater and fixes nitrogen from the air which is all stuff the plants need so
0: it's kind of a fast growing prep for all other plant life
1: yeah sort of this is actually this is another interesting thing that i found out about mosses they're apparently one of the first plants to colonize land on earth wow along with like lichens and stuff which are all part of the same family called bryophytes so there was basically this vision which obviously people don't really know what it looked like but it was basically this this thing that some scientists have called like moss world because it would have been at this point when it was just pangea which was just the super continent so it was just one massive landmass, and the theory is and the presumption is that it just would have been completely carpeted in moss basically
0: wow so that essentially that moss covered continent slowly as the moss did its thing made it a over- possible for other plants to begin
1: yeah pretty much so it, it literally it was because it would have been hard rock. It colonized it you know over, this is over millions of years broke it down and lowered the amount of carbon in the atmosphere and increased the oxygen and that sort of stuff now already un- already knowing about your thesis fe- i see where you're going here and it's fascinating <laughs> but but hold it keep the suspense keep the suspense so yeah so that's why i basically picked moss and it was i was directed to that by a uh, rewilding and ecology expert as a lecturer at sussex that i um went and spoke to had a nice chat with him so so yeah he he directed me sort of to looking at those sort of things because he was he kind of said you know it's hard to know what to do um with these sort of things if you're gonna take the rewilding approach because obviously rewilding is a lot about stepping back and just letting nature do its thing Mm. but if you within these sort of cities if you step back and don't direct it at all you'll basically just get plants like buddleia which grow everywhere anyway which isn't really helping the sort of biodiversity side of things
0: so you have to have a little bit of control because it's not an
1: yeah it's 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 such a completely different environment as well and um and it's not actually because one of the things i got caught on for a while was you know i've got to make sure it's a native species that i'm putting in and when i spoke to him and i asked him about that and he said actually it's it's not too much of a worry because because yeah, cities are so totally different and there's so many invasive species that people have just planted in their gardens that native species might not necessarily work. You're better off just letting nature choose what's gonna work.
0: So essentially just doing what works best. But of course you'd have to be careful not to introduce something invasive and dangerous.
1: Yeah. So I mean with my mosses thing it'll be it'll be local. Mosses that are sort of in the area, but you know, certain ones can't wouldn't be able to survive in a city environment whereas others could. I don't know all the full details and all that sort of stuff because I didn't quite get down the, as far as testing exactly what species of moss will work because there's like a thousand of them in the UK.
0: And coronavirus, obviously, got in the way.
1: Yeah, that did get quite in the way. So my, my project ended up being a lot more conceptual and stuff than it was intended to be, which is a shame. Still
0: absolutely fascinating. So Green Cities, I mean, you've kind of given a foundation to what take you took. I'm sure there are other takes to took. There are plenty of takes to took.
1: Um, I mean, there's loads of green stuff around already there's green walls there's green roofs those are the sort of main sort of green infrastructure that you can have but a lot of you know a lot of cities are already trying to urban green basically london has actually now become the first national park city in the world which
0: london's a national park
1: yeah apparently it's wow it's more of a a token thing it's it's and it's to do with you know giving them then greater control to push for these you know conservation sort of side of things in London
0: yes I can imagine the kind of national park status sets for a lot of precedent as to what can and cannot be done in the city and therefore starts to kind of let them control it and make it green
1: yeah I think I think that's sort of why they did it and it's um London is actually quite quite biodiverse as it is because because of how large it is it's got a lot of different you know ecosystems there there's reed beds there's forests there's um, meadows. Yeah, you know, there's there is quite a lot there really, just not necessarily Mm -hmm. all in the centre of London. So yeah, they did that, and their their current aim is to have fifty percent green cover, basically, which means like fifty say kind of from a satellite image, fifty percent of the area inside the sort of Greater London area is green as opposed to grey. So that could be green roofs, you know, they factor into that quite heavily, or just parks, gardens, all those sort of things.
0: What about like indoor solutions cuz something i've read about very recently is kind of this move in agriculture to try and do vertical instead of horizontal farming mm. just because it's space efficient it's water efficient it's much faster and if we're going to feed the growing 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 population it's probably one of solutions
1: yeah i think that's definitely that definitely the case there's a lot of sort of hydroponics based systems which are you know very smart controlled and not necessarily grown in soils. It, it's, I think it's really cool. I, I looked into it a little bit to sort of get some ideas. Um, and actually, yeah. it sort of ties back into the rewilding thing a bit because it's, by shifting our production to those sort of more space-efficient things that are vertical, it will, in theory, free up, you know, farmland to be rewilded. But there's a lot of issues, um, like policy issues around that because there's, you know, farm subsidies and... You know, farmers and workers, sort of livelihoods, to contend with, which is obviously a challenge and something that you have you have to really consider in these sort of things. Which is one of the sort of big battles with rewilding. There was a there's quite a lot of movement in Scotland with rewilding about reintroducing lynx, um, which are sort mm. of lower down than wolves on that sort of side of things. And you know, obviously, quite rightly, a lot of farmers are concerned that that's going to impact their livestock and stuff. Which I mean, in theory, it wouldn't. And there's quite a lot of places in Europe which have wolves and lynx, and not there's really not many. Get out farmland. Our plants and all that sort of things weren't evolved to deal with this sort of heavy grazing of sheep. Exactly. Yeah, it led me down this this whole idea of you know what what should we be putting into cities? What's going to bring What's going to bring the greatest biodiversity benefit to our cities? Um, and yeah, as I said, I. I, I settled on mosses just because they are something that is not gonna be damaging to sort of human lifestyle because there's a lot of you've gotta remember that the cities are built for us and they've got to be able to support us, but they should by including nature they're supporting us better anyway, so so yeah, that's that's the rewilding. I'll leave the I'll leave the rewilding thing there. <laughs> mm. Um now this is actually something that confused me a little bit and I'm guessing it's just to do with evolution. But I'd, I'd mentioned about Moss World, almost like Legoland, but Moss World. Um, <laughs> obviously, that would have been on a lot of ground, which is quite exposed to sunlight. But nowadays, yeah. Moss doesn't really like direct sunlight. And as I said, I guess that's just from evolution, but I didn't actually find any information on that. Um, so, yeah, that sort of limits where Moss can grow in cities to little, sort of more shaded and slightly damper walls. So not really roofs. So, so, yeah, I honed in on the on the walls side of things there. Yeah. And um, I tried to keep it as simple as possible basically. So so my uh, my my product I actually ended up looking at was like vertical hanging tiles basically that can grow moss on them. And that's, that's that's pretty much it. It's it's I kept it as simple as that and you know a lot of green wall systems are very complex and have sort of multiple layers with you know nutrient rock walls and stuff for it to grow in and then all this stuff irrigation systems and you know i haven't included an irrigation system in in my product which i've which i've named vertiscale
0: fantastic name
1: I, I actually quite like it i was quite happy with that name because it's uh yeah, very because the tiles are shaped a bit like uh snake scales so we've got the scale bit they go up vertically so vertiscale verticale kind of there
0: plus plus scale is a word for climb
1: and, oh yeah i suppose that's true actually so I, I haven't even thought of that oh. um And for all the French people out there, that is obviously green. So,
0: That's fantastic. You hit every single nail with your scale. With my scales. So no, I'm pretty proud of that. So it's essentially just a green wall, but the advantage of having modular tiles, would you say is kind of for an individual or more for, like, why modular tiles?
1: That's quite down to repairability, to be honest. And the circular economy which i did look quite a lot into as well um for the project so yeah it's to do with you know if one tile fails which you know it's 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 bound to happen sometimes that well because you're you're playing with nature yeah so yeah so one tile you can then take them off individually and they're designed so that you can take them off individually and then put a new one on basically and also with it they they're because they're scaled like they're overlapping and the reason for that is the Basically, create a sort of natural condensation underneath each tile, because they're overlapping and overhanging each other, which holds some moisture in. Because mosses grow in like cracks in rocks, literally because of that, they're in a crack that so there's enough moisture, sort of content held in the air, in that little microclimate. So the
0: overlapping essentially kind of gives them a natural environment where they can keep using the water that's provided to them and consistently need.
1: Yeah, pretty much in in theory. Anyway, I so I haven't I haven't tested these because of the old uh, the old COVID. And also, to be honest, growing mosses and testing these sort of things would take months to years to properly test these things. And this is just an undergraduate project. I couldn't do that. I didn't have time yes. for that. But I did speak to some sort of experts and other people. I spoke to a principal scientist from the RHS. Um, and they sort, of, they sort of backed up and said, yeah, I think that should work. But none of them really know because it's not necessarily something that's been done exactly like that before.
0: So it's, it's a unique take and therefore a little bit difficult to see exactly what direction it would go. But I I think it, I mean, it seems incredibly viable in the sense that you cover a wall with these modular pieces, they each work on their own, but they also kind of run off of each other. And I think also, like, in a future iteration, it would be very easy to kind of add a top level, like, irrigation system where it drips down over.
1: Yeah, well, they're all, they're all, like, hanging on a rail, so it would be very easy to put some irrigation along the rail and just have it kind of drip over the front, because... Yeah. That is one thing with mosses, is they don't really have roots. They just kind of use their roots to grip onto the ground, basically. And they get their moisture from the air and rain and stuff. But mosses are actually very good at um, cleaning cleaning the air from particulars because they have a very high surface area. Because, you know, if you look at a moss, it's all bumpy and got these little little prongs out. So
0: That's fascinating. So that they're good in terms of kind of photosynthesis, carbon dioxide?
1: The carbon dioxide I'm, I'm not so sure about because I... I couldn't find any like quantifiable data on the actual amount of carbon that they... they do absorb carbon and the only the only thing that I could find was that um moss lichen and algae all over the world absorbs enough carbon a year which is roughly equal to 3600 pa- like coal fired power stations running all year and that's that's so that's quite a lot of carbon that is quite a lot but that's all the moss in the world we and you said that included algae uh, yeah and algae yeah algae is
0: one of a it's a huge absorber oven
1: yeah so that was the kind of yeah. the closest i could find and obviously the the thing with mosses is, is that they're a very low biomass so they can't store as much carbon as like a tree could mm. but they can probably absorb it faster i think as i said i was getting to the point where i was kind of like trying to pull at data that no one had actually researched from what i could find
0: well nonetheless fascinating so what do you feel kind of like, what, what does moss enable? Like, what, what do you think comes
1: next in the biodiversity? Yeah, so I, as I said, I looked at something that would hopefully be a sort of keystone species, and I feel like moss could fill that role. Um, One, like, paper sort of thing that I read, it, and this was a study that was in Japan um, about some mosses, like, along the side of a rail track or something like that. So, it, you know, it's completely random, and uh, how much is true to what I've done, I don't know, but... They found that there could be up to seventy-seven different species that live in mosses. So this is like macro and micro fauna, basically like your your little things, like your water bears and your tardigrades and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Which you know, it doesn't provide a sort of visible biodiversity, I suppose. Um, but all these sort of things can then provide habitats for insects, which will help insect populations, and hopefully that means that there's more insects for birds to eat and all that sort of stuff. So in theory. It should help quite a lot of a lot of that, but also it's not just you know as I said about cities being to do with you know they're for us they're for us humans. It's not just just for that either, you know. It's um, there's this there's this principle of biophilia, which is basically this theory that humans have an innate connection with nature because yeah we are sort of part nature in our weird way. So you know nature makes us happier and healthier and more productive. So you know having these sort of things in cities theory helps people
0: yeah and i think there's also a very kind of although unproven but i can i can see the line through which an increase in moss would leave insect and then bird life yeah it's not something that's too far of a stretch at all to consider not to you know take that just moss on its own is incredibly valuable in a urban environment that needs more
1: it's a very easy way to provide green all sorts of surfaces and because of because of the sort of low maintenance of it it's just just does its thing it can go on like walls that are harder to access and shaded and are a bit less focused on by these other sort of green water systems um which are also often very complex as i said and they have to be sort of planned in from the start of the the construction of a building um so what i designed actually is literally just screws onto brickwork so you don't have to knock it down and rebuild it
0: just an easy drag drag and drop essentially
1: (laughs) yeah drag and drop moss (laughs)
0: fantastic
1: well that's incredibly exciting. I, I hope and you're so. all done now. I am all done and it's it's weird. As I said, I submitted it earlier today. This episode might have gone out a bit late because I was finishing thesis. Um
0: Well, I think we're all gonna want to know if and where this goes
1: in the future. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely gonna keep exploring it a little bit, see where see where I can take hmm. it. Not got anything better to do at the moment, just stuck at home, so Yeah.
0: Seems like a fun work on and play around with.
1: Yeah, and now without the the tick boxes of a university (laughs) degree to fill out, I can... Yeah, you can basically push it whichever direction you want. So no, it could be cool.
0: Could be very cool. Well, thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and Moss. (laughs) Moss would love this. Moss would love this episode. Unlike videos and blogs, podcasts have no algorithm, and we rely entirely on you, our listeners, telling your friends.
1: Yeah. So please follow us on Instagram at Assemble.it for a deeper look into the show and our own work, including behind the scenes, outtakes, projects. And I will post a picture of my prototype that I have um, with this episode. So if you want to see it, check out on that.
0: Yes, absolutely. And make sure to follow both George and I. Our links are in the bio and George may well post other things related to this in the near or far future. I may. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Uh, once more, to remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it among your friends, family, co workers, and all of the thousand species of moss found in the United Kingdom. It's a lot of sharing. We'll keep an eye. Yeah. See you in two weeks.
1: Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you very much. Bye bye.